Welcome back to Resball. Today we have a special edition of the Draft Pod with Ignacio Risotto of No Ceilings, of Pro Insight, and of FIBA. So there is no better international scout that Ignacio Risotto is filling in for Jam this week. So check out, we're going to go through everybody, Alexander Starr, Nikola Kopic, Zachary Risache, a bunch of guys. Let's get started. everybody we have a special edition of our draft pod unfortunately jam couldn't make it for this one though so shout out jam we can't wait to have you back on here but today i am joined by international scout extraordinaire there is no better international scout than ignacio risotto of pro insight no ceilings and hey what do you know he also writes for fiba again second to none he doesn't know this and i wanted to wait to tell you this until we start recording you were the number one episode that we had last year uh, at Resball. Far and away, number one episode. You were the most listened to, downloaded, all that stuff. So couldn't wait to have Ignacio back to talk about the international draft class for the 2024 NBA draft class. Ignacio, let everybody know where they can find you online and find your work. Well, thank you. You can, uh, well, you can find my work at, uh, on Twitter. I'm Airball, E-Y-R-E, Ball. I'm pretty much writing for No Ceilings. Uh, no ceilings NBA. We have an awesome team. I take care of most of the international stuff, uh, but like the entire team is super talented and I'm lucky to be among them. And then, yeah, I'm writing for people once again. I'm going to do some coverage of the young guys that are going to be in the Eurobasket qualifiers now in February and hopefully, you know, continue with the youth tournaments when the summer gets the U16, U18, U20s. Um, and thank you for having me. Uh, happy to be filling in for for Jam, who couldn't make it today. Um, he does great, great work for for Draft Digest. Uh, I was there last year. And about the the most listened to episode, that's probably me. That's probably me. I love the sound of my voice. So I I might have. Um, <laughs> me and you both. I love the sound of my own voice too. So. <laughs> No, no, but but seriously, for me, it's awesome to just talking to different people, and you know, this one. I think this is maybe the third year we do this. I think this is our third pod. So, like, it's one of those things that I wait every year to, like, I'm anticipating to come here and you know, run through the international class and see, you know, who who stands out. Yeah, I'm same. I always look forward to it every year, and I say that without hesitation there's no better international scout than ignacio if i was like just discovering some unknown guy in a barrio in brazil or something i guarantee you ignacio would probably be like oh yeah i, I know who that guy is and give me like the whole rundown on it and i'm like dang i just like, feel like i'm always playing catch up with with ignacio here but give us the rundown on this 2024 international draft class because it's pretty like all over in this draft class this is, Draft class has a lot of international talent. 
Yeah, this is a class that kind of took a longer uh, time to to develop or to be discovered. Uh, we're getting to a point where a lot of these classes were affected in some sort of way by uh, the pandemic. Like we saw this, this class is the first time that the players born in 2005 are eligible for the draft. Um, and it happened to the 2004 and 2005 class that beyond the big names, some of the guys took longer to develop, longer to stand out because some of the competitions, the invitational tournaments, uh, just weren't there when those guys were 15, 16, 17 year old back in 2020, 2021, when the world pretty much came to a halt. Um, so if you had asked me about this class four years ago, uh, interestingly enough, I was, and, and you can find tweets from me from 2020 about this player, I had Alexander Sarin number one. And the, I think the entire European scout community had Isan Almanza, who is a great player in his own right. Uh, but Sar ended up developing, ended up growing taller. He was a 6'8 forward when I watched him play in a, in a tournament in Hungary for Real Madrid. Um, and he was a 6'8 forward who could handle the ball, had tremendous defensive potential. And I love him. And of course, he grows up to be 7-1. Uh, but, but if you had asked me about any other player like four or three years ago, there wasn't really a clear number to hear. Um, Rizache kind of started gaining some, some buzz maybe two years ago. And then guys like Topic or Dijon Salon uh, I don't want to say they came out of nowhere, but they had kind of a meteoric rise over the past maybe year to six months. Uh, the Topic wasn't really a you know NBA guy until he goes to the U18 championship, he wins MVP. Even then, there were some doubts on him because he didn't shoot the ball all that well there. And then he starts this season for Mega in the Adriatic League and just starts, you know, being productive in such a manner that it was undeniable that he was an NBA guy. But that's kind of a recent thing. So if, if there's like a, a difference between this class and previous classes, is that this class kind of took longer to be discovered. And the other big difference I would say is that a lot of the guys that would have stayed overseas uh, ended up going to college with the new NIL rules. There's clearly, you know, no, there's money for international players. So guys who were playing for all next to nothing in their respective leagues now are getting, you know, important, you know, monetary compensation at the NCAA level. And of course, they they have to they they gotta take it, and and for some of them, it's like their only opportunity. And in some cases, it it has worked well. I don't think like Deshaun George would have been an NBA prospect if he didn't go to to Miami. And in other cases, you have the UCLA guys, uh, which in 
in every respect has been you no know, pretty pretty disastrous. We love that here in Tucson, though. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure you do. I think I don't. I don't want to make any enemies, but I think UCLA tried to speed run the process. That hey, I, I, like, I'll make some enemies. I think Mick Cronin's just like run his team into the dirt. I don't understand what he's doing. His post game press conferences uh, of like burying his players and stuff. It's just weird. Yeah, I think. I think. Being maybe more diplomatic, I would say that they try to speed run a process that took Gonzaga, took Arizona, uh, Utah at some point was a team to be reckoned with in the international recruiting scene. Same for Washington State, but they were more like selective with their guys in the sense of like they didn't have the recruiting power that you know those three teams had. And I think UCLA tried to speed run it. And there's maybe there wasn't a structure in place for those guys to make the translation from the international game to the NCAA game. Um, and I asked one one scout friend if you know the effect of UCLA not not doing well and all those international guys you know not living up to you know what was expected of of them. And there was also a case where Michigan. Um, recruited an Argentinian big man, Lia Lia, and he ended up not being eligible. And now I think he's he's playing for a second division team in Spain. Like if there was any pushback from colleges, and apparently there's not. Colleges understand that, you know, there are separate cases that not every international player, you know, busts, so to speak. They're looking at the Santa Clara example where they have a Dama ball and you know, they have a lot of guys who are under the radar and are doing really well. Um, so yeah, that international guys are just going to keep on coming to the NCAA. Uh, but interestingly enough, in this year's class, that didn't mean that the class got weaker. In fact, we have, what, three players who are projected to be selected in the top 10 at the very least. And then you have other international players who are in the G League, like Matas Fuselis, who is close to top 10 as well. So really, really interesting, really deep international class compared to others, maybe not the kind of... They, there's not a Victor Wembanyama here, of course, but there's a lot of guys who can really be really valuable for NBA teams down the line. Yeah, absolutely. We'll circle back to the NCAA thing here at the end, because being here in Tucson at the University of Arizona, I've been at the forefront of it to understand like what that looks like and why here at Arizona, it's been successful to bring guys in from all over the world. It's not just one spot. And it's been like you alluded to a long time coming. It started with Coach Sean Miller, who's still kind of doing that at Xavier now with like Lazar Djokovic, who I really like. And then Tommy Lloyd, that was his thing at, at Gonzaga. So there was a clear, consistent um, focus on like looking at international prospects too, but we'll circle back here at the end because I do want to like drop some names. But you alluded to it, the top of this class. There's three guys that really have risen up into the top five that are almost consistently in the top five. Starting with Alex Sar, seven foot one, two hundred five pound big man who's playing with Perth down in the NBL for those Wildcats this season so far in 24 games. I'm counting both the NBL blitz and the regular season. 
or Mr. Alex Starr. He's averaging 9.3 points per game, pulling in 4.2 rebounds, uh, about one assist at 0.96 assists, 0.4 steals, and then 1.4 blocks. Shooting splits for Alex are 49% from the field, 28.3% from three-point range, and then 66.7% from the free throw line. I am getting all my numbers from Real GM. I like to use their numbers because of how they break it up, especially for the international classes, international guys. They'll break it up of like, oh, is this in their league? Is this in the Euro Cup? Is this in Euro League? Is this in like a special tournament? So you can get the splits too there if you want to check out like did Alex look in the blitz versus the heck? How does he look in the, the regular season? So your impressions on Alex are, and do you think he should be the number one pick? Because a lot of people are starting to push more and more for Alex R being number one overall pick in 2024. Yeah, so I kind of alluded to this earlier, but Sar started his career in the, uh, or always, uh, like, like always, uh, a lot of prospects have to do with Real Madrid. Uh, and he started his career in Real Madrid with other uh, international prospects and even college prospects that are, you know, projected to to be in, in this draft. Uh, like Baba Miller from Florida State was, was his teammate. Juan Nunez, second round, projected to be second round pick, was his teammate. Um, and Isan Almanza from Jilling Knight was also his teammate uh, at Real Madrid. So they might have uh, four different, like that Real Madrid team might have four different players drafted in, in a single year, which would make it one of the best, most talented teams overall at, at that level that we've ever seen. So Sar was a standout pretty early because of, his size, his length, and also his ability to control his body, handle the ball, and um, you know, contribute on, on both sides of the of the floor. And I feel like every single one of those aspects has stuck with him until this day. Like he, he grew up from six eight to seven one, but he's still a guy that can put the ball on the floor. Uh, not not somebody who's going to create his own drive, but he's really adept at putting it on the floor and attacking defense uh, when when there's a closeout or, or when there's a straight line. Um, there's a guy who's definitely making his mark as a defender. Uh, his his numbers at Australia, he's averaging per thirty six. He's averaging almost three blocks and one steal per game, um, and I just love. His his body control, his mobility, his ability to get low in the perimeter, to stay in front of, of defenders. Do I think he's like a switchable guy? Like like a guy that can defend like threes and fours full time? No, of course not. Not a single seven foot one guy in the league is. But he's, I think, mobile, especially in his hips, to just you know, stay in front, cover drives, and if it all fails, he can recover at the rim with his mobility and his length and 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 just his ability to, you know, just move and, and get back into the play. Um so he's a guy for me that 
at, at the beginning at the NBA level, he's going to make an impact on, on defense with that versatility and that ability to protect the rim. Um, and then on offense, he's kind of a curious case because there's a lot of things he does well in the perimeter. Like, again, like putting the ball on the floor, he can shoot it a bit. Like, he's just slightly below 30%. And I think, like, the the touch looks good and the mechanics look good, at least in, like, pick-and-pop situations or when he comes in as a trailer and hits a three. Um, so there, there's definitely something interesting there. But I don't know if he's going to be, like, offensively. Like, I don't know if he's going to be somebody with the lack of... He's more more mobile and skilled than somebody who can just impose himself in, in the paint and just finish over people. So I wonder, like, how big his impact is going to be at doing, like, the big things on offense. Namely, like rebounding, posting up, except for mismatches, and just finishing like plays at the rim that require a level of strength and a level of force. That to me, I think just for his body type, I don't think he has. I think he relies more on on touch, length, and 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 overall athleticism. Uh, and the final thing that kind of concerns me for a guy that's defense first is that at some times he relies too much on his tools and he's kind of a bit late to rotate uh for blocks in the in in the paint and that split second late at times make you like you're not just you're just not viable as an nba full-time rim protector um so yeah there, there's a lot of like small things he has to fix. Definitely a, an interesting prospect for from the like early perimeter skills and versatile defense. But I just wonder if he's strictly a big man. I just wonder if he's good enough at strictly the big man stuff, if that makes any sense. It does, because the biggest knock that I've heard on Alex Starr is the rebounding. And for me, when I watched film on him, because I've watched every single possession of him, like I, <laughs> he was my early obsession, just because I was like, I don't like him, but somehow like I still see the number one overall pick stuff. He doesn't rebound in his area as well as I would like him to. Like, that's the one thing that I still see. Seven one two oh five. he's not the biggest guy. Like he can be moved off his spots pretty easily. And in the NBL, like that stuff becomes apparent, like game in and game out, where there are big dudes out there that are pretty wily. They might not like be able to outrun you in a foot race, but they can establish position. I still think that's something that Alex Alex Sar struggles with. Like 4.3 rebounds in 17.8 minutes, it's still not great. Um, and I think that like does that sum up like what you're talking about with his big man stuff? Because to me, that's the part of it. Everything else, I'm like, oh, he actually does screen. Like, he could get better there. I could see that. I don't want to say like it's a go-to skill set, but he knows how to do it. It can be something developed. But then again, the shot blocking instincts are just second to none in this class. But then you get into the rebounding stuff and it's like, ooh, he's chasing a lot of these. They don't come naturally to him. And when he's especially under, like directly under the basket, 
you just don't see him pulling any of those down and the other guy does. I want to go back to your question, like he's getting first overall pick looks and if he like is quote unquote worth it or etc. I think this is a draft and we're gonna discuss it at least with the first three guys that we talk with that we discuss. I think it depends on the team. Like if you tell me Memphis, San Antonio, or Detroit takes our number one. Uh, for me, that, that's rough because I don't think he fits. Um, Detroit might, might be the more kind of like, you, you might say why he doesn't fit, fit in Detroit. For me, it's because I think Detroit has bigger needs. And I think it's kind of like he, like he fits in Washington because I don't think they have a reliable guy on, on that. Yeah, they just traded away Daniel Gafford, so I don't even know who their center is anymore. I don't think they have a reliable guy at that position, but at the same time, one other guy that we're going to discuss here, I think it's a better fit for Washington. Um, And Charlotte, I think, I also think they have other needs, and they took a center pretty recently in the draft. So it's it's going to come down to who's on the board, like in, in this draft more than any other. It's going to come down who, to who gets the number one pick and who gets on the board. But I could see multiple teams from the, the ones like at the bottom of, of the league right now saying, yeah, maybe we address other needs in the draft because, you know, even if Star might be the best player available, which he might be, uh, or have the higher ceiling, which I, I think he does have a, a really high ceiling because of his measurements and his mobility and some of the perimeter skill set. Uh, some teams might just say that's all good, but we need to address in San Antonio, like a lack of playmaking in Detroit, lack of shooting in Washington, lack of somebody who is coherent enough to playmake for others and not shoot 20 shots a game and be Jordan Poole. Um, so those are, are the bigger needs. Uh, and, and even Memphis, who is deep enough and they can afford to say, let's just take the best guy available. We don't know when we're going to get like a top six, top seven pick here. They might just say, we have Alex Sar at home in Jaron Jackson. Um, so they might not want to load up on those guys. Um, so yeah, definitely one of the guys who has the higher ceiling in this draft, but at the same time, it's a tough bit for him with the teams that seem to have been falling down, you know, on, on those top picks, but maybe, maybe draft night gives us a surprise. Like let's say Houston gets the number one pick and they have they currently have a center that can do a ton of on offense, but might not be your answer at the five defensively and Alper and Schengen. They would take Alex Sar in a heartbeat because that, that pairing of offensive center who can protect the rim, the rim and defensive versatile guy who can also protect the rim is kind of a, a match made in heaven. So you and I are both Piston guys. Can you please address the shooting? Because I've seen a lot of fans 
and Pistons and a couple other fan bases like immediately believe that Sar is this like stretch big man, which again, we laid out the percentages. They're not good. And I'm going to keep it real with you. Like I'm somebody that I'm not going to say I don't 100% believe in the shot, but I think it's like years away. And, and to put him next to, you know, like you said, this, this team that just needs shooting that's so deficient in it. It'd be a terrible idea. Can you please address Alex Sar's shooting? Let's get into a bigger question, which is what does being a shooter or what does being a stretch mean? And for me, like for some people, it can mean to hit a spot up three occasionally, like shoot 32% on two attempts per game that are spot ups or pick and pops. Or is being a shooter being a guy that can drill shots with a hand in his face, that can come off screen, shoot off movement, uh, you know, punish defenders if they are handling the ball in the pin roll and they go under, uh, shoot off a dribble handoff, uh, be guys that if they feel the closeout coming in, they can reloc- like take a dribble, relocate like to their right or to their left and, and hit a shot like quickly after sending their feet. If you think that being a shooter is the first one, yeah, sorry, can be can become a, a stretch five. If you think that's the second one, which is closer to the definition of a shooter at the NBA level, uh, I don't think so. Uh, I think Sar is a guy that might be comfortable enough in the future to do those to do those things I described on the first part, which is he can be a pick and pop guy. He can be a guy who trails the early offense and gets the pass to the top of the key and hits a trailing three. Uh, he can hit a spot up if he's in the corner. I think that's the kind of thing that I see him with his you know, track record as a shooter with his current percentages and with what I see. That's the kind of role as a shooter that I see him having at the NBA level. Does that help Detroit? <sighs> yeah, when you're in the desert, even a drop of water helps. But Detroit, when it comes to sugar, they need a fucking waterfall. That, that's the thing. And SAR is not a waterfall shooter. See, to me, I'm even like more out on SAR as a shooter. Do you know how many times he's hit more than one three-pointer in his 24 games this season? Uh, I don't know, but I would say two times. Three, three. times. Okay. You're very close. You know the last time he hit multiple threes in a game? Like, he hit more than one three-pointer in a game. When's the last time that happened? That has to be before his injury. So I would say mid-December. October 13th, 2023. Oh. And if it's October, that must be an NBL Blitz game, I'm, I'm assuming. So if I'm it's not an sure NBL, if, let's see, because it goes from the 13th to the 15th, 21st. Is no, no, NBL it's, six it's an early, game? Sorry, it's an early NBL, early NBL guy. I mean, even then, it's bad, right? Like, the last time he hit multiple threes in a game was September the 17th, and then October the 6th. And then the absolute last one was October the 13th. I understand part of it's like the role and playing there. They're not going to let him fire away from three, but that's still not good. 
he's it's not like he hasn't taken them either since then he's taken you know like at least two in almost every game there are times where he's taken four where he's taken five taken four multiple times he just has not hit threes multiple threes in a game since october 13th and then again couple in the the free throw percentage 66 high 66 is fine for a big I just think it's something that like you you throw in everything else we just mentioned, the athleticism, the movement skill, the shot blocking, all that. That to me screams like don't force this guy to shoot right away. Maybe start with some easy things like corner three, but definitely don't like make this a featured part of his development. Dan Vecini, the Game Theory podcast has said that he thinks Alex Starr is like a Nick Claxton. I could see that. And I'm like, you know what? That actually makes more sense than if you develop him that way to be one of the most efficient guys in the NBA with the shots. who doesn't take like anything outside the paint in that area, but doesn't need to because he's a fantastic defender blocking over three shots a game, which you laid out in his per 36 minutes for Alex. So that seems to me like that should be the development path. And then like somewhere along the way, like throwing some corner threes or something like that. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's the way to go for him. Um, I definitely think that that's the way to go because like you can, you can. That doesn't mean that he should not shoot because I think getting into a rhythm and you know, um, I I think missing threes and attempting a lot of threes is the is the way to learn, um, you know, and also the G League is for that. But, but if you're gonna take a guy number one, I assume he's not gonna see many minutes in the G League. So there's a lot of time and repetition. And yeah, having a coach that says, when you're open, shoot it. But I think that's the, the thing at the beginning. When you're open, shoot it. If you're not open, don't try to go off the dribble. That's not your game right now. Might be in the future. But now your game is spot up, shoot it if open. If there's a better shot available, pass it. Basically, that and keep he's going to keep that volume of like one or two threes per game, probably. Yeah, it's going to take a while for the volume to like actually get up there, though. But moving right along, the guy that might be the most in vogue number one overall pick since the start of the 2024 draft cycle is Nikola Topic, who is playing for Red Star currently. I think he's still injured, correct? Yeah. Yeah, he, he's still injured. Um, apparently, like from what uh, Jonathan Giboni said on a piece about European prospects recently, he's not going to be out for too long. Like he should probably return at some point in February. But yeah, he, he got injured in his, I think it was his second or third game after he returned to Red Star from another team in the Adriatic League, uh, which is Mega. So Nikola Tobic is listed at 6'6", 200 pounds here on a real GM, currently playing for Red Star, like we said. But he did start off the year with Mega over in the Adriatic League, I believe. Yes. So the stats for him are a little bit kind of all over the place because you're going to get most of his stats coming from Mega. And then the three games that he's played so far, with the Red Star, two of them in the Euro League, one in the actual like league play there. So you got to keep all that in mind. I only lay this out because I'm going to give you his overall stats, yeah. which is 19 games. 
But you got to remember, it's basically two different teams across three different competition things. At Mega, they played both in their league there in the Adriatic League, and they also played in the Super Cup three games. And then with Red Star, again, two games in the Euro League, and then one so far in league play. And then that does make a difference. Different competition levels. Sometimes you're in a different role, depending on what the, the thing is, if it's in the league play or if it's in some kind of Super Cup. So Nikola Topic, 16.3 points per game right now, 3.5 rebounds, 6.1 assists, 0.9 steals, 0.1 blocks per game, 49.8% from the entire field, 28.2% from three, and then 87.8% from the free throw line. Everybody wants a jumbo creator, right, Ignacio? This might be the easiest case to make for number one overall, even with the three-point shot being around 28%. Like, I'm sure people don't like that, right? But his free throw percentage has just consistently always been in the 80s when you've looked at any of the competition that he's had. So that's something you can hang your hat on and be like, well, maybe he's taking these tough attempts. Well, he is more of an attacker. That's like not something that he's had before. But really, uh, everything else, the points are really high. The assist numbers are really good. When you look at his shot chart, you understand like he likes to get in the basket and attack. Everything else checks out, right? Yeah, and I think probably uh, maybe some teams, and as as both Pistons fans, we know this firsthand. If you get mentioned, if if somebody mentions you, an international guy who's a jumbo creator, six six, really great passer, really great vision, etc., but has difficulty shooting, you're gonna get flashbacks. You're gonna get Killian Hayes PTSD. Here's the difference with, between Topic and Killian Hayes, a comparison that nobody made, but I'm trying to kill it before it gets brought up, is that Killian Hayes couldn't get downhill. Like, he didn't really have any, any power to get downhill. Uh, Nikola Topic is just a freaking machine of getting downhill. Like, he puts a lot of pressure on the defense. Um, like he has really, I, I, I love the handles. I love the, the combination of like speed, size, ball handling, ability to change directions. He's not like, he's of course, he's not Kyrie Car- Irving. He's not going to rock you to sleep with crossovers or going to like stop on a dime and, 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 and change directions. But he is like super flexible and knows how to get through a defense, knows his snake dribbles, he's comfortable in traffic, something that Killian never was. And so that downhill threat opens up a ton of things for him. And the first thing that he, that opens up for him and he takes full advantage is the passing. he has just tremendous vision for, for his size and for his age. Um, the first thing is that he makes the simple reads. He, he, like, he has an unselfish approach to the game, doesn't try to do too much. If, if the, the easy play is the right play, he'll make it. Um, so he can be like your game manager. But he can also, if, if things are rough with his gravity as an attacking downhill and we, with his 
creative passing out of the pick and roll when it comes to passing angles, uh, threading the needle, getting bounce passes, making the skip, skip pass, hitting the guy that's two passes away. Like he, he has that in his bag. He offers that package as a passer. Um, and those two things, those two threads should open up the thread of shooting. I wrote earlier this year about the shooting that he shows flashes of versatility. Uh, he last season, he shot like 38% uh, between different competitions. Like you mentioned in, in last season, he was not only in the Adriatic League, but also in the Serbian League. He was in junior competitions. Um, so different levels of competition all around, but he shot 38%. Uh, he attempted a lot of threes. And he, like, I, I think he shows touch on tough attempts in the paint. That for me, that touch in like floaters and, you know, uh, bank shots of, of the high glass uh, tend to translate well as a touch of shooter. So there's a lot of like really positive indicators. Then there's the mechanics that are all over the place, really low attempt, like really low attempt rate for for a guard. And for me, what's like what's a burning memory for me is that he shot nine percent in the U eighteen European Championship last summer. Like he shot, I think it was two, like three for twenty. Uh, no, two for twenty one. Uh, is he still won MVP? So he was that impressive. He led Serbia to the title with his, again, his threat as a slasher, his ability to make plays for others. But I don't know if the shooting is going to be there from day one. The positive indicators are, are there, but uh, there's also just too much negative evidence to ignore, in my opinion. So... Topic, uh, a guy that if you have a team with a ton of guys who can shoot and you can afford to say, yeah, this guy might never shoot, but we're content with the other stuff he does, definitely take him. Like, again, if we are talking about fitting and teams that might get the first few picks, San Antonio, go for it. You have the shooters. Get Topic. Um I think even Washington is a team that needs a guy that, you know what I mentioned, like unselfish approach to, to the game. Washington needs that. Uh, a guy that can attack downhill, Washington needs that. And if you get a guy that's at the same time unselfish and has the ability to follow his own number, Washington needs that. Because now they have guys who are either unselfish or only can call their own number. So Topic is kind of a guy that can set that culture of, hey, you know that you can do both, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's for me, there are more maybe clear fits for Topic at the top of the draft than there were for, for SAR. So I've heard the name Goran Dragic mentioned with Topic a couple times. I hate that comp, to be quite honest, because I always hate the... Mm-hmm. European to European guy like that. To me, this seems more like six foot six Dennis Schroeder 
I, I really, really hesitate to say, like, if it works out, this is like SGA because SGA does kind of have that similar profile. Didn't really shoot a lot of threes coming in, but I don't want to put that on him. I mean, SGA's 30 point per game scorer, right? I, again, in 2024, if that guy existed, like he would be number one overall. Everybody would be falling all over themselves to get it. But I think you know, who, you know who's my comparison, and I love to do like you know European to American comparisons, just because I don't want to compare them always to the same type of players. Yeah, he reminds me of Markel Fultz in a lot of ways, but. He reminds me of Fultz, if you knew that Fultz might not be a good shooter coming out of Washington. Um, just because of, like, he's he has the size, he has the body control. Like, I loved how Fultz moved with the ball. And that's something that happens with Topic. I love how both of them could attack downhill. Um, I think Topic is a bit of a better playmaker for others than Fultz. Even though Fultz really had passing vision, I never felt that Fultz. Like, I felt that that time because I, I just loved him as a prospect. Now, looking back on it, I realized, hey, he was never going to be a primary guy. Um, a primary guy in the sense of, like, he was never going to be the guy with the ball in his hands most of the time. Um, so if back then I watched and you knew, hey, this guy's not really going i don't know if this guy ever is ever going to be a shooter like that pretty much tracks to what i feel about topic man false is like not even taking them do you think it'll be that much because false is only taking 275 threes in seven seasons and 135 of those came in the 2019 2020 i mean i i, I would not think that topic would be that gun shy or that like non-shooter if you have the so here here's let's let's go with this live. Um, what's the attempt rate for faults? Because Topic attempt rate is like I think thirty four percent three point attempt rate. I I, I think yeah, that faults is faults is nineteen point seven. Well, yeah, but you also have to take into account that. You know, your shot diet becomes more limited at the NBA level because oh, you have to do... Sorry, that was his free throw attempt rate. Fultz is... Sorry, his free throw attempt rate is that 19 one. So Fultz's three-point attempt rate is... 38. 12.8. Oh, 12.8. Oh, the, that... Sorry, I was... Yeah, 12.8. And never was 17, over 17 in a season. Um, I don't think that's going to be topage. I also think that if the shot doesn't fall um he's gonna be told probably like you know let's restrict your shot diet and do like shot shoot the shots you know you're gonna do well and work in the off season on on shooting and at least the first few seasons he might be one of those guys who you know he'll shoot it if open he'll attempt the occasional three uh, out of the pick and roll if defenders go under uh but I don't think he's going to do a lot of like ISO stuff or getting to his spots in the mid range and shoot from there. Um, but but I think there's enough. Like the difference with SAR for me is that there's enough positive indicators to for me to say he might become a shooter two, three, four years down the line. 
Yeah, which again, I think is why a lot of people put Drogic there because Goran took a while before he became a useful player for one. And then it took a while before he became even like a capable shooter. It's part of why I do the Dennis Schroeder one. Dennis Schroeder really didn't take threes until his third year. Before that, he's taken like under two of those per game. And even now, uh, what is he like nine years into his career or something like that? The numbers for his three-point attempt rate are 29.5% for his entire career. His main thing is still attacking like that. I know his attacking is a little bit different from what Topich is, but like that same general type of player. And also Schroeder didn't become like the Schroeder we know now until his fourth year in the league. Every year before that was like 11 points per game or under. I could see that for Topich too, that it might take a while to readjust. It might take a while for him to, like you said, not just shoot a good percentage, but like know how to take threes and understand like, where to take them. And then ultimately at the end of the day, even though his percentage might look good, he's still a limited three point shooter, just the way that Schroeder is, even though Schroeder is still a great attacker, can get to the free throw line, great assists and is in demand. Yeah. I think the difference is, I think the size, um, and, and maybe the make or break for him, if the shooting doesn't fall, is going to be that defense. And for now, let me put it this way. I think, Offense is the clear thing he is focusing at this point. Like he doesn't really like he has his moments. He can intercept the pass. He can play the passing lanes, um, but he's not like a, an on-ball stopper by any means. And I think it might be rough in, in his first few years in the NBA, especially if you play him, if you ask him to defend quicker guards, and if you don't like put him with off-ball guys if you don't put him defending other twos that might get might get rough for him yeah this is somebody even at his best he's like what the fifth guy that you're trying to hide and definitely try avoid man-to-man situations right yeah yeah he's either the worst defender on the floor or the second worst defender on the floor just because I, I don't think he, he ever showed that level of like lateral mobility and ability to stay in front of opponents. But like he, he does do a good job off the ball and he can like occasionally like use his body to play bigger than his size and like smaller guys just bounce off him. But yeah, I, I don't just, I just don't see more, more than that for. For the time being. Yeah, for sure. Definitely lacking on the defensive end and maybe more of like an off-ball guy or at the very least like a Bojan Bogdanovic type of defender where like he was able to do it enough in Utah where he wasn't pulled off the floor and yanked off the floor, but he was good enough offensively that you still needed him out there. I don't know if he can be like complimentary the way that Bojan was, but probably something like that on defense is his peak, right? Yeah, and we we are seeing guys that are contributors despite poor defensive um, outputs and like guys that aren't defenders aren't really shooters but you are so great playmakers that can do things for others like that can you know justify their their place on the floor um one of them being josh giddy who hasn't really had his best year 
uh, this season, but in previous seasons, like he was a valuable guy for OKC. Thing is now OKC has so many guys that he's just not as valuable for them as he was when like Jalen Williams wasn't there. Um, or when SGA hadn't become like the SGA we're seeing today. Uh, but there's still like a valuable spot for those guys who have really good size and can pass the ball and can get downhill. But certainly like the rate of success is greater if you also can shoot the ball or or also play defense. Speaking of shooting the ball and playing defense, we have the other riser in this international draft class that more and more people are starting to get. I don't think I've seen anybody put him in number one, but he's definitely started to break in the top three. And that's Zachary Riesechet, six foot eight, two hundred and four pound forward, playing for a Bourgogne Brest over in France this season. For Monsieur Riesechet, he's scoring eleven point four points per game. He's pulling in three point five rebounds, dishing out just one little bit over one assist a game, 0.9 steals per game, 0.4 blocks per game. Shooting splits for Risa Shea are 51.8% from the entire field, 46.3% from three-point range. He's been on fire. And then 69.7% from the free throw line. Give us the sell on Mr. Risa Shea, because even though he's been rising up draft boards, I still feel like he's the one that most fan bases are still like, I've heard the name, but I don't really know about him. Let me do some background first. Uh, Rissuche, a product of Asheville, who is kind of the powerhouse in French basketball um, and one of the teams that, you know, produces more, you know, future pros and future NBA players. Um, spends his formative years in Asheville, always playing one year, two years up in age. Uh, he plays his first, you know, games at the EuroLeague level and at the top level with like 16 years old. So he was definitely a prospect in that Asheville really saw a lot in him. Um, and then he goes to like the French teams, you know, at the U16, U18s. And this year he had the U19 World Cup. And now you see the numbers in the U19 World Cup and you see like he shot 44% from three and you're like, oh, okay, he had a good performance. That was the case when we saw it. Like he looked at times like the fifth best player on the floor. He was outplayed by Alex Starr, by Melvin Najinsa, who was a prospect until we saw him in the French League. Uh, this year and we realized that it was kind of a, a one-time thing. Uh, he was outplayed by Zachary Perrin and he was outplayed by a ton of guys there. So U19 World Cup ends kind of he, his draft stock dies down and he goes, he changes teams, he goes to Borgen Brest in the French League and he just starts shooting the hell out of the ball. And if you're, you're looking for a selling point, just look at the, the volume of attempts and look at the three-point percentage. 123 attempts, 46% from three. Um, 
And he also, like, he's not, like, an offensive creator. He's not going to create for himself. But he's, I think, versatile enough with the handle at his size to do the things that we talked about earlier when, when we talked about shooters. He's versatile enough to, like, take a dribble and relocate, take a dribble, step inside the, the, the three-point line and shoot from mid-range. He's versatile enough to come off a screen. Like, he has that ability to shoot off movement that really bodes well for his projection as a shooter at the NBA level. When you combine the shooting with the fact that he's a versatile multi-position defender at 6'9 with a long wingspan, that makes him really interesting. And that makes him a guy that if you ask every team in the league and you ask, hey, do you need a 6'9 guy with long arms that can slide in the perimeter, that can, you know, occasionally, you know, get get a block, maybe half a block per game, and can rotate and help you with rebounding, and also shoot in the high thirties from three. And he's not going to be a ball handler, but can move the ball. Do you need a guy like that? Thirty NBA teams are going to say yes because every team needs a guy like that because we are talking about having. You know, you have your lead playmaker, you have your rim protector, and then you always have three guys in between who are asked to shoot and defend as, as a baseline. And he shoots and he defends. So that's a baseline that a lot of teams see as really attractive because they need somebody at that size to do those things. Now, the two questions are, can he cr- do anything in terms of creation? And is the shooting really real? I don't know if he's going to do any creation. I think he's better as a, like a, a ball mover, mover, like an opportunity passer, a guy that can recognize the open man, make the extra pass. Maybe if he drives to the rim, like off a straight line or off a closeout, he can recognize the guy in the strong side corner or the strong side wing. And if he pulls that defender in, he can kick it out. Like, do those kind of things. Not a pick-and-roll creator, not a guy that's, you know, going to make the skip pass and all those advanced passes that we talked with Topic. When it comes to self-creation, he does have some, like, dribbling chops. But I don't think he has, like, the short area quickness with the ball to, like, get over defenders. For me, he's more of a guy like a a straight line, close out, and those type of situations guy, and transition as well. Um, So that, I think, answers the question of creation. I think he's going to be limited. Who's his comp? Wow. That's that's the one that, uh, for me, is, is the struggle with him of, like, like you're you're making a sell and I believe all that, but I'm also like, I don't know like who that is or what it looks like. Um I I did the comps for the no ceilings draft guide uh at, at the beginning of the season and I went with a lot of like um when I was doing the comps, I went with a lot of like 
statistical stuff and what guys at similar size did at the NBA level. One guy that I came up with was Marvin Williams. I think Marvin Williams was somebody who was that size, had long arms, could, you know, um, collaborate on defense, shoot the three, but not do a ton of creation. But he was a really great shooter and he was a really, you know, solid player for Charlotte for a number of years. Another guy is Dorian Finney-Smith. This is like, again, maybe he doesn't develop as a creator. I don't think Dorian Finney-Smith ever did. But if you put him next to a creator, he can do all those things that your main creator shouldn't be asked to do because otherwise you'd be overworking him. Like, okay, now go hit a three. If you get the ball, attack, close out and play your butt off on defense. And that's valuable. And another guy that also I saw that had, maybe this is like the um, unsuccessful comp for Risa Shea is Troy Williams. Um, a guy that was a couple of years in the league, you know, when he came out of Indiana was... You know, kind of a guy that, yeah, he can move the ball, he can shoot the three, he can play defense, he can do this, he can do that, and never really did it at a at an elite level enough to stay in the league for a long time. But he had all those all those things in a similar fa- fashion as Risa Um So yeah, it, it kind of looks like that. Uh, it kind of looks like, you know, a guy that's not your primary or your secondary creator, but can be valuable for all the other things he all the other things he does. Yeah, I agree with this. What range do you have, Risa Shake? Is I feel like he's getting pushed up the board only because there are not a lot of other standouts like this. Like the three point numbers look great. He continues to stand out. I've made the joke and I'm putting the big board together. My first year in this draft is like, somebody's got to step up. You know, somebody's yeah. got to show up. And it just seems like the guys that have been at the top of this draft, Topic, uh, Ron Holland to some extent, Star, like that they've just flashed consistent enough things that make you excited. And with Risa Shea, like, I hate to, I hate to be negative, Nancy, but the flashes of stuff, aren't as enticing as everything else like you just said he's not a self-creator right and even the defense this is where i need help like i i don't really know what level of defender he's at and like if you could sell him more on defense and being like this man-to-man difference maker or like being the low man as a difference maker like could that be another thing that could push him up in the top three uh good question i think there aren't many guys at six nine that can slide laterally, stay in front of opponents, and uh, cover drives the way he does. Uh, and I think he has a really good motor on that end of the floor. Uh, not like a super quick guy or anything, but he's just somebody who plays with a lot of effort on that end of the floor. I think he understood pretty quickly, and this is from being on a team. From being 16, 17 year old and playing for Asphalt, who plays in the Euro League, uh, like he was playing up until last season, the only way you're going to earn your minutes and you're going to earn your shots 
is if you play your butt off on defense. And he did for Aspel. And so he learned that and he is doing that for this team. And he makes an impact by, you know, defending the perimeter. I think he can defend wings. I think he can defend forwards. And I also think that he's aware enough and long enough and big enough to rotate on defense from, from the weak side and, and contest shots. Not a pro- prolific rebounder and at this point, at least for, you know, this season for, for Brest. But he has been, from what I've seen, has been way more time in the perimeter than, than in the paint. Um, and so that might have something to do with that. Um, but I do, I do think that with those measurements, with that mobility and with that ability to stay in front of opponents and with that approach to the game of being a high motor guy on the defensive end of the floor, uh, I think he can make an impact there. All right. Again, I hate to do this, but to me, you got to consider everything in the profile, especially like the background. And I'm always leery of the one-year wonder guys. And Risa is a one-year wonder in terms of shooting. This is the first time he's ever shot anything over like average. And the last time he even shot something over like 30.7%, I believe, was back in 2020, 2021 um, at the S4 where he was 34.9% from three on 2.6.9. Season after that, 32.1% across a couple different leagues and then 30.7% last year. He's also been a guy that struggled to say around 70% from the free throw line all season. Again, currently he's at 69.7%. To me, this is a convergence of things that always make me hesitate and not want to buy into a prospect. Number one being where there's a statistical anomaly, one-year wonder thing like this, where it hasn't shown up or it hasn't been like a nice progression to where you're like, okay, I can see them making that jump and that makes sense. And then the other part of it, especially for shooting, if you're not a center and you struggle to stay over 70% from the free throw line, I really am hesitant to buy into that. And When I've talked about this with Jam, he's always been like, you know, you got to meet somewhere in the middle. And this leads into the question that that Jam did also want to ask. And he asked me to ask you here is just like, how ready is, uh, or it'll come in with another prospect too. It's just like, how ready is, you know, Reese to say as a shooter, do we really buy into the 46% or do we really want to downsell it like the other year? Again, this might just be a personal thing for me, but those two things I just can't get out of my mind. And then throw in the FIBA play. Like the FIBA play has always stuck with me too, like you said, where he's like the fifth best guy. I totally forgot he was out there most of the time. Like Sar would make a defensive impact. Now Perrin was there all the time and Jinjo was there all the time. Like you just saw them or whatever. And then Risa would occasionally splash a three. And you're like, oh yeah, I forgot he was out here. And in that FIBA tournament, he only took 18 total three-point attempts. So it's not like he was raining down from the heavens. Um, Am I just being a hater? I guess this is the way to end this. No, but let me give you some pushback on, on, on the shooting part. I do agree that you need to be concerned about one year wonders. My question is, do you go back and look at three-point shooting percent at the high school level for college freshmen? I, I do 
honestly, is one of the things that made me upsell Tyrese Maxey because I thought that year was just an anomaly. And if you watched him in high school, you saw him be a pull-up shooter. You saw him do all these other things. And then you factor in the free throw percentage he had at Kentucky, which I believe was still in the high 80s, and that he's taking all these tough attempts there. So it is something that I always look back in the profile okay. like that. Okay. Because my, my point was that Risa Shea would be, if he was in the U.S. considering his age, like he's going to be still 18 years old and he's going to be until April 8th. Um, if he was in the U.S., he would probably be playing his senior season of basketball, like his senior season of high school. Um, and so I think like, if you look at guys who, what they shot as junior and sophomores and et cetera, it has to do a ton with context and it has to do a ton with what, uh, what team you had around you. And I, I just, I just don't think there's one clear answer like, oh, this guy shot 30% or shot not never shot over 35%. Um, so he's never going to be a shooter at the NBA level. No, I, I, I don't think that's, I don't think that's, and I'm not saying you suggest that. I, I think what you're saying is be wary of those guys because they're not going to get to the league and shoot 40% from day one, which brings me to uh, Jam's question. And I agree with that. I don't think, what I think Risa Shea needs is, one, he needs the structure, and two, he needs to go to a place that doesn't, I, again, I don't know if this is a word or, word or not, but he needs to go to a place where they don't overcast him, where, where they don't say, hey, we believe in you as a future, like, number one guy, as a future number one option, we're going to give you the ball. We're going to let you like have run 10 plays per game because he's going to fall flat on his face. He needs a, a team like, if you're like and going to the teams that are going to be in the top of the draft, San Antonio, get a Rissache because you have the shooters around him and you add a guy that's also a shooter, that's also a defender. Now you're going to be you have the three and the freaking squad. You just need a point guard. You can get that in the second round. Spoiler. Um, San Antonio, take him. Memphis, take him. Take him. Give him 10 minutes per game. Uh, get him off the bench. Give him two, three per game. And let him shoot like <laughs> a ridiculous number on a small sample size. Uh, but teams like and this is my pushback with Rissachet to Detroit. Um, Detroit is a team that where every prospect they got, uh, they seem to unlearn how to shoot. And they turn guys who are elite shooters into uh, mediocre shooters. And they turn mediocre shooters into bad, into non-shooters. So I'm, I'm scared that with a lot of the value of the potential value in Rissachet being him just spacing the floor at an elite level. If he gets to Detroit and he can space the floor, 
that's going to be that's going to be an issue. And there are other teams that I don't feel have the right structure to maximize the value that that Risa Shaken have for them. All right, cool. That's a fantastic answer. I couldn't agree more there too as well. And again, like we've said with all these guys, it's really going to depend on who gets the number one overall pick. But I know Risa Shea has been the one that's slowly, slowly making the climb up. The other guy that's been making the climb up that really started the year like on almost nobody's radar is Tijan Salon. Tijan Salon is playing over at Schloe in the French League, six foot nine, two hundred and three pounds. Right now, the season for Schloe, uh, Mr. Salon is averaging 9.3 points per game, pulling in 3.3 rebounds, dishing out 0.7 assists, 1.1 steals per game, 0.1 blocks per game. Shooting splits are 41.6% from the field, and then 36.2% from three-point line. And lastly, 79.4% from the free throw line. I want to lead off with Jam's question. Jam did send me a question about Salon here that you would love to hear your opinion on is how close is Salon to being an NBA contributor versus being a project? Because I've seen both. Like people say, like, see these skill sets here. He's ready to come in and be a three and D type forward. I've other seen other people of like, hey, look at these flashes of things. You should take your time and develop him to be more of an on-ball guy. He's a long-term project. Like, what do you think? Is it more closer to being you know, ready to contribute on an NBA floor or is it more of the, you know, this is going to take a while project? I think he's more of a project. Um, and that's not a knock on him. Uh, when somebody asked me about Salon early in the, the draft process, when not a lot of people was talking about him, and my answer was, he's, he has top five upside in this class. And I think he has shown that in the sense of, there aren't a lot of like guys at his size that can that are fluid with the handle as he is that can create their own shots as he does. Um, so so that um, that ability that level of self creation at his size is incredibly exciting, but also. It's it's terrifying because you start to wonder. In in, in a way, um, Salon is like the exact opposite of Rissachet. In the way, not because of, of like, I'm not saying he's a bad shooter, he's a bad defender. Rissachet plays really well within the structure and he like moves the ball, he makes the smart play but he plays within himself. He knows what he does. And if he has the right structure, like we mentioned, he can shoot the ball, he can defend, he can move the ball, etc. Salon is kind of a wild hole out there. <laughs> He's just like, he will, he has a really bold shot selection. At times it, when it goes in, you're like, how is this guy not number one in the draft when he misses badly and doesn't even touch the rim? Um, you're like, how is this? Not how is this guy on the floor, but you're like, yeah, he might need to tone it down. So what you get with Salon is like, 
you get a, a gunslinger type of forward who has just tremendous like fluidity for his size uh who moves down the court really well who can shoot it off the dribble who can get to the rim but kind of you you start wondering after watching for a while you start wondering okay if he, if the shot goes south right because the long started the season shooting pretty i i would say below average right and then in 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 uh, starting in december in december he shot 68% from 3 and then that's kind of the bulk of you know the the shooting he has shot 30% in january and 29% in in the two games in february so he's kind of coming down to earth a bit when it comes to the shooting so you you wonder like if he doesn't shoot like he shot in in December, what do you get with him? And what you get is basically a project, a guy that's has again great perimeter abilities for his size, but at the same time he needs to, you know, start to add value in other areas of the game, like passing, like playing defense uh like even like not only playing defense but finding a position where you're comfortable playing him as a primary defender because i don't think he's like the numbers never suggested that he's a rim protector and i don't think he has like all the things we discussed with risa shake i don't think he has the lateral mobility or the like high intensity to play like as a defensive stopper in the perimeter. So when I say it's terrifying, it's because I've seen this movie before. I remember loving Pokushevsky coming out of Europe. I remember loving Usmani Cheng coming out of Europe. Uh, And I'm like, okay, is this the guy that's finally, you know, doing it, representing all the kind of offensive weirdos like perimeter self creators who are kind of inefficient, but when the shot goes in, it makes you reconsider everything you know about basketball. Or is he another one of those guys who can never get that connective tissue together, who can never add value as defenders, ball, ball movers, guys who can play off the ball and therefore never, you know, give any value? as NBA players? Or do they become like solely that as shot creators? And that's another thing. And that's why it's so freaking exhilarating to, to think about his, his prospects. It, does he become a lead enough at creating his own shot at his size that he ends up being the, the guy in this draft that just is the most valuable guy? Because self-creation and shooting off the dribble and getting to the rim at that size, if done at, a, at an elite level, you can build an offense around that type of guy. But there's a long way to go for him to become that guy, if that makes any sense. No, it absolutely does. Salon's my favorite prospect maybe in this draft for all the reasons you laid out. 
I'm being a little buck wild at times. I've said this a ton on this show. I would rather draft the guy that I have to rein in than the guy that I have to fire up. To me, Risa Shade's the guy you have to fire up a lot of times, where Salah's the guy that you have to rein in and chill out. This I've seen this movie before, too, of six foot nine. He's mainly a shot creator. He doesn't offer much on defense. And to me, I'm not saying it's going to happen again because I realize the situation I'm about to say is rare. But Jaden McDaniels, like a lot of this to me screams Jaden McDaniels because he profiled that same way. Like, I hated Jaden McDaniels, if I'm being quite honest. I was like, man, this fool, like he takes every shot he wants. He doesn't care about defense. He's not a passer. And then slowly but surely in the NBA, he found his role. And hes it's funny because he doesn't really do shot creation and stuff anymore. I agree with the salon stuff. Like, I would love for him to be shot blocker. That is just not a thing here. But he still has quick enough hands to get over one steal per game. I do think there's tools in there. Like, I do really like salon's closeout technique. I think it's one of the best closeout techniques I've seen in a while because he really doesn't jump. And that's the one thing that I always hate about dudes that that just like do hard close at every single time it's like you any smart team will see that and just be like nope we're gonna get it but salon at least understands like i have these long arms i'm just gonna get in your face and i'm never gonna jump that's something to build upon in my opinion and i also really love salon's shot that high release he has at six foot nine with those long arms like that's something to build upon that you know if you continue to work at it and salon's been a good shooter so far He's had 35% or better from three every season he's had at slow A either in their development or here at the the big team. And the free throw numbers have been like below 70% the last few years. And then this year he's taken more and is at 79.4%. So it is progressing as well. I, I think there's a lot of tools to like, but I also am like, oh man, just like with Jaden McDaniels, if I bought into him back then, I would still be like, oh, I don't know how high I want to take this. Probably in this draft, it's still somewhere in the lottery, like in the teens. But I would love for it to be in the top five. I, I but you, even for me, like everything you laid out, it's like, man, I can't get there. I love this guy, but I can't get there. I also wonder, like, this is the first year that Salon plays, uh, you know, senior level basketball because he was with Cholet's junior teams all up until the 2023-24 season. He only played like 15 total minutes in the French first division with the senior team before this season. So I just wonder how much is it about him having to continue to learn to play basketball and continue to Better to make those reads that other guys with more experience, you know, can make and he doesn't. Uh, I wonder if that's about somebody telling him, hey, you know, it's it's better if you defend this way or, man, if you don't defend this way, you're not going to earn any, any minutes. Uh, I wonder if there's some of that uh, because he definitely seems like he's freestyling it a lot. And the team is leaving him to do that because he's shooting the ball so well that they can afford to. Uh, but 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 I wonder if that's like... And he never, like, un, until last year, he was never a part of, like, the French U18, U16 teams. Uh, he made his debut last year at the U18 European Championship. 
So it's not like he was seen as this like top level prospect coming into like even January 2023. He just blew up in 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 an invitational tournament in in ANGT, um, which is kind of the biggest club U18 tournament in Europe, and then he just took off from there. So I wonder if there's a bit of like, yeah, he still needs to learn how to play within the flow of the office, within a structure, within himself. And if there's a team or or if there's a coaching staff that's up to the challenge and they think like you and like a lot of teams do, like he has the talent, he has the natural skill set, we'll figure the rest later. Um, if there's a team like that, yeah, definitely go for him. Yeah, and I think his shooting's being a little bit undersold. Like he is the second leading three point guy on the team behind Craig Randall. And Craig Randall's shooting terrible there at 31%. And then at Salon at 77 total threes. Then we have TJ Campbell at 73 threes. And then Enzo Gudosina. And Salon's still shooting 37.7%. Like you said, part of it is they let him run because the shot is there. I think that's also something to consider is like the shot seems to be consistent, but I'm also of like, you're saying like this may be not necessarily one year wonder, but when it's the first time they've been on the senior team and it's the first time they played that high level basketball, especially in Europe where you get like time with the national team and all those other things. There's, Probably been that song and dance as well, too, right? Of like, we jumped the gun on this guy a little bit early. Maybe if we let him season out more and like find out what his role is, that would have been better. That, that's my biggest fear with Salon is that somebody kind of jumps the gun on him. And yeah, especially if you're in the top five, then, you know, you're going to be thrown out there to the wolves. And if you're not ready, then forget it. He's just going to be thrown by the wayside. In my Jaden McDaniels thought, Jaden McDaniels is the 28th overall pick. I feel like that's probably the best for Salon is to get picked lower, like down lower in the card. But keeping it real in this draft, somebody's going to fall in love with him up high, I think. I think we have to normalize sending your guys to the G League. Like, it's, it's about time. If you, at, at some point, I'm, I'm going to get into like how many. Any minutes were kind of quote unquote wasted on guys who didn't deserve it just because they were drafted high. And I think developmental minutes require a developmental league, and that should be the G League. Um, if I'm a team, I get Salon one year with the G League, uh, play an entire season there, see how you do, figure yourself out, and then let's let's talk next year when you're ready physically and from a learning game standpoint. However, that requires a team that has kind of a, a unified structure between the G League and the NBA squad. And I know for a fact that doesn't happen all as often as we'd like to think. So that's why G League at, at times is not really the best place to develop even if it's thought of as a developmental league but let's suppose that the G League works as intended and that your team has a structure where you can send a guy to the G League and tell the G League coaches hey we need him to work on this and this and this and that 
yeah, that that would be the perfect situation for him. The Heat don't have a first round pick this year, do they? Oh, they have, I don't think so. Yeah, yeah. So I think it might go to Orlando. I mean, that would be the perfect one. They're pretty much the only team that consistently uses that developmental system. Although there are other teams like the Warriors have been able to get guys here and there. Um, the Pelicans have been able to get guys here and there. So hopefully it does become more of a normalized thing because, yeah, I think it will do wonders for a guy like Tijan Salon, who's a fantastic ball of play. If you haven't watched any of Tijan Salon, please go watch him. It's fantastic. There are some games where he played against Risa Shea as well. Definitely check those out. It's always fun to watch, you know, draft pick, potential draft pick, go against potential draft pick. So now we're moving in the final section for this 2024 NBA draft class where I'll give you the floor and just ask you the question, who else from the international draft class we haven't laid out here would you say like they should declare for this 2024 NBA draft? I think the two guys are the first one that's also expected or at least um, you know projected to be a first round pick is Bobby Klinman, though he's more projected as like a end of the first round type of guy. Klinman uh, formerly played at Wake Forest, did a year of high school in the U.S. Uh, as well at Sunrise Christian. Uh, I think the uh, the attraction with him is that he's six ten. He can put the ball on the floor, create his own shot to a certain degree, uh, get to the rim, um, and and just that. I think you get a pretty, you know, decent type of stretch or stretch forward guy with really good size who can rebound the ball, you know, shoot from the perimeter, offer some type of versatility in his shots and his ability to get to the rim on like straight lines. Defensively for someone in size, he doesn't really offer that much as a rim protector, but I think with his size, his, you know, uh, ability to contest shots and his rebounding, he's far from being a net negative on, on that side of, off the floor. Um, so yeah, somebody who uh, a bit older than the guys we discussed, all the guys that we talked about are 2005 born. He Lindman was born 2003. Uh, but I, I think he has figured out what he is at the NBA level. The other guy, one of my favorite guys, like in the second round is Juan Nunez. Uh, point guard out of Spain, 6'4", playing for uh, racial farm. In Germany, he was the floor general for that Real Madrid 2004-2005 generation with, again, Baba Miller, um, Alex Sar, Isan Almanza, him, a bunch of other guys who are all over Europe uh, right now. Uh, simply put, Juan Luis is the most creative passer we've seen in international games as Luka Doncic. Um, he knows every pass in the book. He knows. He is uh, he's a wizard in the pick and roll. He knows every angle. He knows every bounce of the ball. He knows every delivery. <laughs> he knows he's just incredible in terms of vision and reaction and accuracy and technique when it comes to passing. 
what's the problem? Well, everything else. Um, but he has been improving. Uh, that's that's what got him from like fringe fan favorite type of guy. Like got him from you know highlight compilation type of guy from that to a, a serious prospect for me this year because to the passing he added the ability to you know connect on his shots at least like catch and shoot jumpers and even some jumpers out of the pick and roll. Um, the thing with him is going to be like he doesn't offer as much shot versatility as you'd expect from a lead guard. Uh, he's not as like a super explosive guy that can you know get by his man out of sheer quickness or handles. There's always going to be a screen involved with him, which is good because he can make every read you need him to. But it's bad in the sense that if you need a guy to like, you know, come up with a play in isolation. If you need quick scoring, he's not going to be your guy. Um, but he's one incredibly, incredibly fun to watch. And to if a team needs playmaking and has shooting and self creation at their disposal in the other four positions, like the San Antonio Spurs. And I'm going to be driving this bandwagon until draft night. Uh, I think you can afford to take Nunez in the second round, get him as kind of a backup point guard type of role, and then see if you don't need that type of like pass first guy that can occasionally hit a like a, a spot up three uh, and has decent size for the position. Maybe you need that sort of guy when you have. Devin Bassell, and you have Calvin Johnson, and you have Victor Wembanyama, and you have potentially Sagri Sachet or whoever you take with those two uh, picks in the who are projected to be in the top ten. Um, so that's the type of team that can get Nunez or any team that really needs like a floor general type of guy who can run an offense and let everybody do they, their thing. And just hit the right guy at the right time. Yeah, for me, I'm going to go a little bit of a, a deeper cut. Somebody I've always liked a lot is Dace Ritter, who's playing for Bill Bow Basket this season. Six foot eight, 216 pounds. Dace is scoring 6.5 points per game, pulling in 3.8 rebounds, 0.8 assists per game, 0.5 steals, 0.3 blocks per game. And then shooting splits are 54.7% from the entire field, 42.9% from three, and then 71.4% from the free throw line. I really like him as like the second round gamble. I've said it a couple of times on the show, 45 to 60. I think 45 to 60, you should start thinking differently and trying to find guys that like size skill things like Memphis did with Gigi Jackson, where a lot of people were hesitant on him, where and that is clearly not the case there or just like unreal production or whatever. Face for sure has always been this guy that's just like can naturally score the ball. And then be the way able he's the way he's able to handle the ball and score at six foot eight, two sixteen. Like you just don't see that very often, even in a second round pick like that. And I know you might be thinking like really arguing for this guy that's only scoring like six points per game. 
Well, I know Peckham DDA is a guy that a lot of people like out there too. And these guys have like similar stat profiles. And also he's playing in the ACB. Now he went up from the Antwerp Giants over in um, Belgium, yeah, I believe. Yeah, yeah. The BNXD, that's Belgium and Netherlands leagues combined. Yeah, and then to go from there all the way up to ACB and to get 16 and a half minutes both in the ACB and then being able to play 11 games in the Euro Cup. And his production is pretty similar in both. Like in the ACB, it's 6.3 points per game. In Euro Cup, it's 6.8 points per game. Uh, the shooting isn't that great in the Euro Cup. It's 25% versus the 48% in the ACB. But I mean, he's taking more attempts in the ACB. It's still not a lot. It's just like over one attempt per game. But I still like the tools. And this is definitely a tools guy that in that second round, like I would just roll the dice on and be like, look, man, playing in the ACB, he profiles like a second unit, Tobias Harris. Because if you look at Tobias Harris's draft profile, like he didn't exactly stuff the stat sheet. It was rolling the dice again on the six foot nine shot creator. I just think there's a lot of intrigue and the shooting seems to be getting better for Thace. I've just always liked him. I don't want to like buy into him completely on defense, but I do think with that big body and he's not like a terrible athlete, he's able to get enough in the way and we've seen him be able to hang there in the ACB, which a lot of people think is the second best league in the world, myself included. I just think there's a lot of nice tools for an NBA role player there. He killed it at the U20 Europe last summer uh, as kind of that, you know, strong 6 eight guy who can put the ball on the floor, shoot threes, and play defense. On, on multiple positions. So there's definitely an NBA kind of interest there, something that a lot of NBA teams can value. Um, I think for me, the concerns are the lack of like production at the high level for his age because he's going to be 21 this year. Um, but there's definitely something there. I think. If I were a team and I had one of my scouts would be, you know, all, all over him, I would say, well, let's take this guy late in the draft and let him develop in Europe. And maybe he becomes like one of the top guys in Europe in two years. We bring we bring him in uh, and, and he can have that kind of arc of development. Yeah. So if these directors are on your radar, at least. Give him a shot there and check out some some work. The U20 FIBA championships is really good. I think also he's able to show a little bit more as a rebounder, which he's not always asked to do um, in his club performances all the time. And it is always nice for me to look at the national teams to see like, okay, when you're the guy, like, what do you look like? Are you still like as efficient? Are you able to take those skills? What are you able to flash as a shot creator? What are you able to? flash on the defense or on the glass and all of it to me was always positive with face it's just showing like yeah just like i think there there's more there to unlock but yeah i, I get it that you want to see more more stuff for him um but like i said late second round it's hard to find six foot eight guys that have the ability to do anything with the ball like that so last thing we're going to end on is circling back to the ncaa guys and like thinking about nil Keyshawn George's 
probably the only one that's really sticking out right now, right? Everybody else is kind of either taking a slower approach or like we mentioned with the UCLA guys, it's not working out so well. Do you think this will affect in the future, like guys from Europe coming over to do this? Like my Wildcats have found a great way to do it here um, in Tucson where like they're not selling anybody a bill of goods. Um, they're able to transfer in from other places like Paolo Larson came to Utah and then transferred in here. Omar Barlow stopped at uh, Gonzaga before uh, coming in here. But then they still have guys like Adama Ball who might transfer out of there and still able to supplement it here with like a Caleb Love, uh, a Kylan Boswell. Like Vesar has come in here, hasn't really set the world on fire. Krivas has come in here and, and looked better. Do you think that that might affect more guys from doing this or from this becoming a pattern now? Like I said, if you can think of another guy other than Keyshawn George, I really can't think of anybody else that's come in and just like killed it. Well, I think besides, and this is looking at the recent board at no ceilings, I don't think Shvonimir Ingishich from Kentucky would have gotten looks even if it's out of just one game where he killed it, but I don't think Ivishich would have gotten looks staying in Europe. Um, I don't think Bob Miller would have gotten looks staying in Europe, basically because he would have been probably, he stayed in Spain, he would be playing second division, probably. Uh, I don't think Adama Ball would have been getting draft looks in Europe. I don't think AJ Mitchell um, uh, yeah, I'm saying right. A, 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 AJ Mitchell. Yeah, AJ over UC Santa Barbara. Yeah, he was from AJ. that that guy. Yeah, from Belgium. Yeah, uh, and Keyshawn George obviously is the big example. I got asked about Keyshawn George, like at this point last year by an SEC team, and I was and I my reply was, who? Because he was playing second division. He was not only playing second division in France, he was playing the junior league from the second division in France last year. And I looked at his tape and I looked at his stats and he looked athletic and he looked like he, he could do everything. But he was playing, that was high school competition and I'm not talking Montverde and IMG Academy. Um, and, I'm, and I was like, hey, like the tools seem to be there, but I don't know what this guy's going to be against real competition. And lo and behold, he goes to Miami and just kills it. Um, so yeah, a lot of guys benefited. I don't think if the, like, if the world dries up, I don't think it's going to be on the side of, of the players or the agents. Because there isn't really many other places in the world where there's the level, the type of money that there's in NIL. Uh, guys, 18-year-old guys, unless you're like the 10th man in Real Madrid or Olympiacos or Red Star or one of those big EuroLeague teams. Unless you, you can get that single spot that's generally reserved for one and only one guy all below 19, 20 years old. 
Um, beyond that, no other European teams were are going to get to that level of money. Maybe a, a ton of players will say, you know what, let's let's go the NBL route, or maybe a ton of players will say, let's go the G League route because there's money there to be made as well. Um, but I think it's going to be business as, as usual. And maybe the the final thing, you kind of have to look at the trails and read between the lines and start seeing which agencies have certain players and say, okay, maybe this, this agent won't work with this school that promised something to the, their player and didn't deliver. Not in the monetary sense, but in the what can we do for you in terms of development and in terms of putting tape out there for NBA teams. Uh, that's how, uh, not saying that anybody broke, broke a promise, but that's how certain guys start in in Saga, start in Arizona, start in big teams, and then end up at Santa Clara, uh, but end up playing their best basketball. Uh, uh, you know, the, the, those type of guys. And I think the final thing is that agents need to start being smart enough to realize that, you know, at times getting the bag for one year is not probably the best decision if you're gonna end up you know in not the best team the year after that um and that has to do with agents looking at it long term and with college teams looking at it long term and saying yeah maybe we don't need this guy maybe we don't have the structure for this guy we know he's talented but we don't know what to do with him and I don't think many colleges like run offenses and I'm not a, an Adaimara fan by any means I was pretty I was lower than consensus on him coming into the season uh, he had some people saying he was going to be the number one pick I never saw that but I do think that you need kind of a special type of structure to maximize the value that Mara can bring because he's a really good playmaker from the big position, but not a lot of teams run the type of sets that you need to run for him to add value on that side of, of the floor. If you want Mara because, oh, he's seven foot three, uh, and you expect him to be like an elite rim protector, uh, that's not going to happen because that's not his game. Um, so at the end of the day, it's, it comes down to you know, sincerity from both ends, from the guys helping young kids make the decision, their college decisions, and the colleges offering kids not only NIL money, but, you know, we're going to play this way, we're going to, you're going to be this focal point of the offense, or you're going to have this role, because, and, and I understand that the life of a college coach is rough, and if you lose two in a row, you're in hot seat. Um, so that's how you end up with those type of cases and you, sometimes the plans that the promises that you made, you have to abandon those, those because you're not going to have a, a job otherwise. But, but yeah, I think 
teams and agents and players and international coaches who are just saying, hey, this 18-year-old guy, I, I know I'm not counting on him for next year because he's going to go to the NCAA. Um, I think it's an adjustment period for a lot of people. Uh, and I think the light at the end of the tunnel is when international recruiting becomes normalized and coaches have a clearer picture of what like levels of competition, what does it mean? What does it mean that a player a player scoring four points a game at the ACB level, it's better than a player scoring 20 points a game in the U21 uh, second division French league. But that's something that every part of, you know, every part of the board needs to navigate together to get to the end where international recurring becomes more not becomes more of a daily thing. And the final thing is normalizing that means that coaches need to stop texting me in June when they struck out on every national prospect and they ask me, who's available? Who's available? Well, man, whoever was available just got a had a bag a while ago. Uh, so international recruiting is something that you do every single day of the year, the same with national recruiting. Yeah, I, I hadn't thought about that too in terms of like just getting here and being on the roster gives you an exposure level that you wouldn't be if you're still in a junior team for like Real or you're on the B team or whatever um, over in Europe. That That makes a ton of sense. So yeah. But I, I do think like the UCLA way to do it versus like the Kentucky way to do it is probably like the, the two that I think about first because UCLA just seems like, and again, I know I'm the Arizona guy, so people are probably going to be like, oh, he's hate on UCLA. But like, it just seemed like they're like, let's bring in a bunch of international guys. And then it's like, okay, do these guys actually fit together? Like, are you going to have minutes for all them? And then it didn't end up happening. Whereas Kentucky gave like, what, two guys? Visich was way late in the process, so you had to. He had to understand, like I'm coming in late. I'm not going to learn all the plays and stuff. I'm already behind Bradshaw, and then they have uh, Onyenso. That's the other guy that they brought in there, and then everything else just fits into the their regular schedule program of five star dudes bringing one transfer, maybe two, um, and then that that makes sense. That roster construction makes sense, right? And Sean Miller, again, shout out to Sean Miller. I feel like he's done this for a while where he'll focus in on like one or two guys and then build them long term. It started with Rissich, uh, Dusan back here at Arizona. And then it started to branch out more into like Laurie Markinen. Uh DeAndre Aiden is from the Bahamas, I think, if I remember correctly. Like he was just able to identify one or two guys and then put everybody around there to where it's like, let's make somebody the focal point instead of you know, bringing in a whole cadre of guys. We'll see how it works out with Tommy Lloyd. Cause I, I, I do fear they are veering into the, the UCLA territory too, where they just have a ton of guys. And I don't know like what the promises they're making to them are, but it's clear that some of them are like kind of have one foot out the door already. Like a dumb ball is a good example. I really like Philip Borovic and then I've followed him for a long time. I think he has a lot of on ball juice his shots kind of come and gone, but he can do a bunch of different things at six foot nine. Like he's probably a good test case of like 
what's going to happen here. And is that somebody that like you just kind of brought in because they were intriguing, but didn't really have a plan for it. So I, that probably be the other part of it with like agents and trying to fill these, these errors out. And, and the one player for the last one for me that I've always like kept in the back of my mind for this is Santi Aldama. Cause I didn't really know anything about him. And then when I started doing the draft profile on him and I found out he's like this high level dude over in Europe, I'm like, why in the world? Did he go over into the Patriot League? Like, why in the world was he playing for Loyola, Maryland? And it goes back to, I think, what you're saying here is like, I'm going to go to a place where I'm a featured guy, where I'm going to get all this press. And like, I don't care that it's in the Patriot League in Loyola. It worked out for him. Yeah, there's a, there's a Spanish connection in there as well. I think there was, uh, I want to say, uh, an assistant coach from Spain uh, uh, that had connections to that recruiting scene. And Aldama, like, he was known within the, the Spanish circles, but the overall international scouting community didn't really have, a like, a great read on him. Uh, he's kind of a weird, not a weird story, but he, he originally played for one of the big teams in Spain. Then he moved to an academy called Canterbury. And if you didn't watch like the Spanish tournaments, like the domestic U18 tournaments, you would have never watched him because he wasn't a part also of many of the, you know, national teams. Uh, But everybody who watched him at Canterbury was like, Man, this dude is 6'11. He does everything. He puts the ball on the floor. He shoots it. He passes. Um, and so that made him kind of fly under the radar from the non Spanish crowd. And he ends up with that Spanish connect in Loyola, Maryland. And he was also like this, I know from somebody who, uh, Talked to his parents a while ago. He the goal for him, even if the NBA came calling, was to finish the the degree there because they really valued ed- education. If not, he could have gone pro in in Europe. Uh, but he went to Canterbury because of the educational aspect of it, and they were going to prepare you, even especially in the terms of. Uh, like the language barrier, we're going to prepare you to go to a USA college. Um, and, but when he got a first round promise, promise it was too much to pass up. Uh, as it should be. And now he's one of the best players, like a really huge part for Memphis. So goes to show you that beyond that that FIBA play and U18 tournaments and etc. is just a surface. There are great players, especially in those big countries like big basketball countries like Serbia, France, Spain. There are players that can be valuable at the college level, way below the level of the national junior teams. Yeah, I think Santi just proves your point though that. If you come here, the exposure is enough. They're going to find you if you're at Loyola, Maryland, no matter what. Because they're, you're right here. It's not a plane trip across the ocean. 
you're right here. They have area scouts. If they have area scouts in DMV, they can just drive over there. Like, come over here, even if it's on a smaller team, like you're going to get spotted and they're going to notice you. The talent always rises to the top. Thank you so much for your time, Santi. Or, uh, thank you so much for your time, Ignacio. Apparently, it's too late here. I can't even think anymore. Last thing I do want to end with, you are a Piston fan like myself. We do the Piston pod every week with that driven Piston fan here. What did you think of the, the deadline here for Mr. Troy Weaver? Um, I don't want to do the whole, I wasn't expecting anything and was still disappointed. <laughs> but no, I, I think all things considered, like obviously there was, uh, the writing was on the wall with some of the pieces that we were, that the business were moving. And so um, I, I think the big thing that a lot of people criticize is that the business didn't get like a first round pick for Boyan. We knew we weren't getting a first round pick for Boyan. Maybe last year we would have gotten but I, well, I, I don't know if you heard Troy Weaver's comments today. He admitted there were better deals out there. And and why? Did he explain why he didn't take them? If there were better deals. I don't think that's something that I would say out loud. Really? That was exactly my thought. It's like, why would you ever say that? <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, well, that's nice to know. Um, I can give you the exact quote here and just yeah, go for it. Yeah, um, that's like me going to my boss at work and saying, "Yeah, I, you know, I I could have done a better job. Hey, I I could have spent less time on Twitter while while I was at work." Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I'm so, not gonna I'm not gonna incriminate myself that way. Thank you very much. So his quote, Weaver on bogey. We had better offers last year at the deadline. You can say that. This is where we are now, and I like what we got in return for those guys. We got coveted players that we wanted. All of that plays out on the floor, and hopefully it plays out to our favor. End quote. I think I think there, there, the, the clear thing is that last year we would have gotten a better return for him, but I do think that there was some Optimism for okay, this year K returns. We're gonna have Jaden Ivy. We're gonna have a, a top pick. If we put Boyan there, uh, maybe the thing is different. Maybe we do like a playing push. I think that was the idea, uh, and I'm not against the idea. So my, my thing is that this is the best we could have gotten this year. I think I like winning crimes. Um, so yeah, uh, getting Fontecchio is getting shooting as well. So that's a, like not a lot of moves that like really move the needle for a few, like for the next few years. But I think it, you, you add a couple of pieces here and there that, um, that might make life easier for Kate and, and Jade and Ivy. And that's, I think, everything you, you can hope for at this point. Make life easier for those two because those two are going to be your franchise. Um, yeah, absolutely. 
The, the other big thing is Killian getting waved. I think we saw the writing on the wall. Uh, I, I, I think that that's one where it was too late. And when you got Kate and Ivy, like you had to let Killian go as soon as he had some, as long as he had any paint value, even for like a conditional second. Um, I, I just wonder, uh, do you think there's a team out there that picks up Killian this season? I, I do wonder how he looks on the Spurs, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Dallas has shown time and time again, they like to pick up the international guards that fail on other teams and somehow like make them work. Those would be the two that, that spring to mind. And maybe, maybe, maybe Milwaukee like is just like, yo, we need another guard defender. That would make, make sense. And you can at least pass and like get guys open shots. We don't need him to take shots. Yeah. Like a guy that's a pass and defense type of guy uh, that, you know, the, the, the Spurs, they're not going to make any sort of like push for the playoffs, but they can get him in the building and maybe see, okay, maybe for next year we can get him on a two-way. We can get him as like our third point guard and see if he goes up from there. Yeah, best best of luck to you, Killian. Uh, yeah, we'll see what happens there. But I agree with you on the trade deadline stuff of just like, I like Rhymes, I like Fontecchio, but it, it still does seem like disappointing just because Weaver has to go and shoot himself in the foot and, and admit what he just admitted there out loud. Like I said, I don't know why I, I would ever say that out loud. Why anybody would ever say that out loud. Maybe, maybe it was someone else's decision to keep buoyant. That's a very good, very good thought. We know. I, I have absolutely no info. I'm not an insider. I barely talk to any people in my I mean, life. you don't even need to be an insider for Detroit. Gores was famous for saying, you can't trade Andre Drummond. And then that, how that ended up playing out. And then he was also famous for being like, I want Blake Griffin. And then we all know how these things turned out. It's just yeah. been a consistent thing with the Pistons that nobody wants to say it out loud, but everybody already knows it. Yeah. So that, that might have been a, a subtle way of throwing somebody's decision under the bus and if i had to sit there and show my face for the wrong decisions that somebody else made i would sure as hell come up with something like like that statement so yeah i know don't you have like a staff that can write statements for you or something i was just <laughs> listening to um the game theory podcast they were talking about how leon rose the gm of the Knicks like never talks to the media. And I'm like, just be like him, man. Like, what are you doing? Just yeah. talk to people. It's clear like Weaver doesn't want to talk to people. He's awkward and a terrible public speaker. Like, just shut up, man. Like, don't say anything. So, anyway, uh, let's hope for next year. Yeah. Well, hopefully we'll have some fun with Kate and Ivy. Grimes knows his role. He's just going to chuck up threes. Fontecchio knows his role. He's just going to chuck up threes. I really want Stu to come back healthy and for them to just give him the green light and launch like six threes every night. It looks fine. It's looked good. That's the only way he's going to get better and be a difference maker out there. And then Jalen Duran's lack of defense will continue to cover that here and, and focus in on Jalen Duran's progress or lack of progress on defense. But 
hopefully they just would go from a terrible, terrible, historically terrible team to a, just you know, a plain old terrible team that's at least fun to watch from time to time. Because yeah. last night was fun to see Caden Ivey lead the charge, come back there. And I really think they are starting to play off each other better. Even if it's not like run for them, you can tell they're just like, forget it. We know what to do. We know what our strengths are. We like each other. Let's just run some stuff by ourselves. That's the best thing we can hope for that they can, what, whatever it is that, you know, let's call it competitive fire or whatever. Those two dudes have it. So yeah, that's, that's the best thing you can have with, with young prospects. We, we're just have to hope they, they figure out the rest of stuff that needs to be figured out. But when you're talking about, you know, will, when you talk about, you know, competitiveness, they, they do have it. And I think you got to build around those dudes. Yeah. And they're both, well, them and Stu are what I like to call buck naked brick wall players, where you, if you told them like, Hey, Light yourself on fire, buck naked, run through that brick wall. It'll make you a better basketball player. They would do it. Like, that's the kind of player these guys are. They'll do whatever it takes to just get better at basketball and win. So go Pistons. Please, please, please at least be fun the rest of the year (laughs) on the way out. So, Ignacio, thank you once again for being so generous with your time and spending all this time with me. I always enjoy chopping up the international draft prospects because there's always, always somebody... Like I I don't know about, it. and I was really surprised to hear you didn't know about Keyshawn George because I feel like again you know everybody, man. Lastly, let everybody know where they can find you and find your work one last time. So you can find me at Airball E Y R E Ball on Twitter. You can find my work at No Ceilings NBA and Diva People website. Once in a while, I'll be, but everything will will be on my Twitter. So. Hopefully this year, if you if you're um, interested in international prospects that are coming up one, two, three, four years away from being drafted, I want to believe that I got you covered. So if you're if you're into that type of stuff, definitely look at my Twitter, look at my work because that's going to be right up your alley. Yeah, and definitely go subscribe to No Ceilings if you haven't subscribed to it. It costs nothing. They do have some paid memberships and whatever, but they have a fantastic team. Ignacio here. They have Nick Agar Johnson. They have Stephen Gillespie. Uh, Maxwell Baumbach is there. My guys, Corey and Albert, on the, the Draft Act show. And then the Tyler's Tyler Rucker, yeah. Tyler Metcalf, Arizona alum, Tyler Rucker, by the way. So shout out to all those guys. So thank you again, Ignacio, for being here. We will catch you next time. Bye-bye.